The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. turn in your Bible to Mark's Gospel. We begin a new series in this important and possibly earliest of the four Gospels. Uh, this is the shortest Gospel, an action-filled Gospel. His history tells us it was written by John Mark, who appears in the book of Acts, whom Peter refers to as his son, his son in the faith. And uh, other early history tells us that uh, the Gospel of Mark very well may be Uh, based upon the preaching and sermons of the Apostle Peter, of whom uh, John Mark was a a disciple and uh, was trained in Peter's ministry in the early church. As we go through it over coming weeks and months, we'll find that it is a very action-filled gospel, sometimes moving at breakneck speed. It uses the Greek word immediately 36 times, in fact, nine times just in chapter one. Well, tonight we plan to cover quite a bit of ground uh, as we gain our first glimpse of Jesus Christ, the one proclaimed the Son of the living God. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I sent my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way? The voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair, and wore a leather belt around his waist, and ate locust and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open, And the Spirit descended on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, 
and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And they went into Capernaum. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent, and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed. So they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the remaining region of Galilee. This is God's holy and inspired word. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for revealing to us the very beginning, the beginning of the hope of the gospel that has been revealed in Jesus Christ. And I pray that you would minister to our hearts, awaken us, enlighten our minds, and lead us into truth, truth that sets us free we might live for the praise of your glory and your grace. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. In the beginning are the opening words of Scripture. As Moses introduces his readers to their creator, God. Of course, these words are echoed in the introduction of of John's gospel when it says, In the beginning was the word, and the word became flesh, and the word came and dwelt among us. Matthew begins this gospel linking the hope rooted back to Abraham. Luke opens his gospel going all the way back to Adam. But here Mark starts at the beginning of the gospel. As it was announced and preached by the coming of Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ. It was both the message that Christ proclaimed and he himself was the good news. By his life, his death, his resurrection. But of course, the beginning of the gospel was rooted in the promises of God to bless all nations, to provide a redeemer first mentioned to our first parents after they fell into sin and rebellion. Now is the season of new beginnings as children go back to school, as students head back to college. People often talk about a new beginning when they are earnest for some kind of change politically or professionally or personally. But there is no greater new beginning than the gospel of Jesus Christ. For only in the gospel is the power to change us, to make us new creations in the likeness of Christ. For through the gospel we have the forgiveness of of sins, the hope of eternal life, lives transformed forever. Sadly, there are many confused about what the gospel means. 
Many misunderstand the nature of salvation and how one may restore a right relationship with God. There are those who believe that God requires great deeds, religious works in order to enter heaven. Or there are those who believe that God simply lets us into his heaven because he owes us no sacrifice required at all. There are the cynical who claim that the gospel is too good to be true. There are others who refuse to accept the truth of God's holiness, the prospect of judgment, the prospect of eternity in hell, who reject the Bible's condemnation of fallen human nature, that we are sinners, helpless before a holy God. And of course, there are many who embrace the gospel. The gospel as the only hope of salvation, and yet fail to apply the gospel into daily life, asking, well, what difference does it make in how I should live? Some receive the salvation of the gospel by faith, but then attempt to live the rest of the Christian life by works, seeking to perform and earn and maintain good favor with God. There are some who wonder if the same grace and forgiveness received at conversion is still available years later as the believer finds him or herself struggling with ongoing sin, dealing with doubts and setbacks in one's Christian walk. Well, we believe that the good news of the gospel is not only for eternity, but is also for this life, that Jesus came to save sinners, to offer a new hope, that you and I are forgiven our sins, that we are accepted into the presence of God, and that we are empowered by the Spirit to live lives that are genuinely pleasing in God's sight as we learn to walk by faith, as we learn to abide in his love. So whether you find yourself walking in the assurance of God's love for you, or whether you are struggling with doubts, with fears, with anxieties about where you stand with God, or perhaps wondering whether you understand the gospel at all, I invite you to join with us on this journey as we begin this new series in the Gospel of Mark where we begin at the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Tonight I want to observe our passage in five parts to see the preparation of Jesus' ministry, his commissioning, his testing, before he went public to fulfill the mission of his Father, looking at his ministry and his authority. Well, Mark opens with quotations, not just from Isaiah, but also the prophet Malachi, which each point to this messenger who had proved to be none other than John the Baptist, the last of the Old Testament prophets, who had come in the likeness of Elisha, both in appearance and in zeal for God. John came preaching a a baptism of repentance and the forgiveness of sins. John's baptism was a kind of purification ritual that Jews would offer to Gentiles to purify them and move towards adopting the law of Moses. But here, John is applying this baptism to Jew and Gentile in order to prepare them for the arrival of their promised Messiah. 
You see, John was a herald announcing the coming of a great king. And the people were drawn to John. He, he looked funny. He was strange. And yet they admired his zeal, his boldness to confront leaders, even kings. And with his evangelical, evangelistic zeal to preach repentance and faith in God. I find remarkable in verse 7 the humility of John. He clearly claimed that he was not the Messiah. He was merely a messenger, the forerunner of the promised one, the one who was mightier than he, the one whose filthy sandal strap he was unworthy to untie. John was below a slave before the coming Christ. John's Water baptism would be but a symbol of the purity, symbol of purification to prepare for the one who would baptize with the Holy Spirit, cleansing us from our sins. You and I live in strange political times where the two leading candidates for the highest office of our land both have very high, unfavorable ratings. It strikes me as peculiar in my assessment that each of the vice presidential candidates seem to be better men. Mike Pence and even Tim Kaine appear to be humble men of character, at least surpassing that of the leading presidential candidates. But of course, the role of the vice president is to help cover over the faults of the presidential candidate, to try to uphold his or her strengths. As a candidate. Well, certainly John did not have to cover any of Jesus' faults. But with great humility as a forerunner. He comes not promoting himself, but promoting the one who was promised to come and deliver his people. He did not get a big head. John did not have a Messiah complex, but pointed his listeners to the coming Savior. All of us, especially Those of us serving in ministry should take note. John reminds us that each of us are dispensable. The people we meet in crisis need Jesus more than they need you or me. Parents should take note. Parents who, raising children, need to recognize that our children need God as their Heavenly Father, more than they need us in our micromanaging ways. The people we care about, those in our lives who may be making foolish choices, need the wisdom of God more than our own limited counsel. John was wise and bold. Not to let his followers cleave to him, but to boldly pass them on to the one who would truly lead them in pathways of salvation. He models well of not making much of ourselves, but to make much of Christ. The call of every faithful disciple of the Lord Jesus. I call the baptism in verses 9 through 11 the the commissioning of Jesus. His inauguration as he began to enter into his public life of ministry The other Gospels record how John was reluctant to baptize Jesus, insisting that he must be baptized by the Lord himself. 
And yet Jesus countered by insisting that he be baptized in order to fulfill all righteousness. And on that great event, the Spirit of God descended upon Jesus and empowered him for the mission he was called to fulfill by his Father in heaven to enable him, like the great Old Testament saints, who are weak and flawed men, and yet here was the righteous one of God being led by the Holy Spirit. But note the voice from heaven when the Father cried, You are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. I am awestruck. It just just wonder upon wonder that the Lord Jesus, in all of his perfect, sinless humanity, needed to hear the validation and the affirmation of his Father in heaven. I'm convinced that it was the intimate connection, the fellowship Jesus had with the Father, that sustained him through the trials and the temptations and the hardships of his ministry life in order to complete and fulfill his Father's mission. And I believe that that same affirmation is for you and I. When we believe the gospel, when we receive full rights as adopted sons and daughters of the living God, it strikes me as peculiar how often this theme fills historical figures and fictional accounts, how a son or a daughter may suffer Rejection from an earthly father. History tells us that John Adams was a particularly harsh and demanding father, at least towards his younger son who struggled with alcohol and died a premature death. Rich Mullins, the noted late Christian singer, suffered great rejection by his own father, a farmer who could not bring himself to affirm Rich's obvious musical gifts nor was he able to be gracious with his son's clear lack of mechanical abilities. And yes, Rich Mullins also struggled with alcoholic addictions. But neither one of these sons can blame their problems upon the treatment of their fathers, nor can you or I pin the blame of our own issues, our own struggles, our own addictions upon how we were treated by parents, or others. Yet even still, the love and the acceptance of a father can make all the wonder, all the difference in the child's sense of worth and acceptance. And yet, a parent's rejection, abuse, or neglect can cause untold harm in the heart and soul of a child. Friends, the good news of the gospel is that you and I have God as Father. Jesus as our elder brother and every other believer is a brother or sister in Christ. Our acceptance before the Father is not based upon our own goodness. How gifted we are, how much we accomplish, but through the finished work of our elder brother. As you labor, through trial, through Difficulty, may you hold fast, may you believe the gospel. Abide in Christ and hold these words true, believing that God intends to say to those of us in Christ, You are my beloved child. With you, I am well pleased.
The text says that immediately after his commission, Jesus was then tested. Verse 12 says the Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness, where he was tempted by the devil for 40 days. And here we see one contrast and one parallel. You recall that Adam and Eve were tested in a lush garden with delectable things to eat, surrounded by obedient animals. In contrast, Jesus was sent out into a dry, barren wasteland, limited with food and water, surrounded by dangerous wild animals. Some scholars speculate that this detail was added to provide consolation to those Christians being persecuted by Nero, many of whom were killed and eaten by wild beasts. The 40 days of Jesus' trial provides a parallel to the 40 years of wilderness wanderings as Israel followed Moses in the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, where God tested the hearts of his people and revealed the nature of those fallen hearts that expressed grumbling, idolatry, unbelief, and rebellion. But here, Jesus, under trial, his heart proves true. He passes the test, and it says the angels came to minister to his bodily needs to remind us that he, in at least his humanity, was weak, had real needs, and yet remained without sin. This past week, I watched one of my sons run a two-mile cross-country race, and he and his teammates were tested by great heat and stiff competition from many runners from uh, much larger schools. You know, we, we don't know what we're made of until we're tested. Teachers test their students to prove what they have learned. Coaches put their athletes to the test to prepare them for greater trials. And so does that God test his people to test our loyalty, to prepare us for much harder things, to make us resilient as James says that testing and temptation are there to prove steadfast, to enable us to endure much harder things ahead. I believe the fact that Jesus was truly tempted in the body should encourage us. That we are not alone in our temptations. When we face disturbing news, when we fear the diagnosis of cancer, when we look ahead into retirement and we don't see enough to carry us through, when we dread our future, when we are overwhelmed by important decisions to make. Jesus identifies with us in our weakness as we learn to depend upon our God and Father. And the Spirit promises to be with us, to help us in our weakness as we learn to depend upon and rely upon the strength that only God can provide for his people in great need. We've observed the preparation, the commissioning, and the testing of the Lord Jesus. But now we take a view into his ministry and his authority. In verse 14, it says that after John had been arrested, Jesus entered into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. And verse 15 gets more specific that Jesus proclaimed that the time had now come, that the kingdom of God had now arrived. Now, to Jewish ears, this meant that God was now finally acting in history to deliver his people from pagan oppression, to perhaps restore the glories of old, establishing a righteous king, military might, and installing leaders of true wisdom. 
And yet, as the chapters ahead will show us, the people became increasingly disillusioned when Jesus did not fulfill their expectations. He refused political power. He would take no part in military revolt. Even his own disciples despaired that weekend that he was tried and crucified. Although he had repeatedly told them, informed them of his suffering and death, and that he would rise again, they could not get past their own preconceived ideas of what God must be doing. Jesus had a message. Very simply, Mark says, it was to repent and to believe. To repent and to believe in the gospel. To repent of what? Well, obviously repent of sin. To repent of idolatry. But perhaps he also means to repent of the ways we insist upon God fulfilling our hopes of our failure to conform our hopes and purposes to his. Perhaps it's to repent of our own self-centered and materialistic ways of living only for the here and the now. And by repentance, we must die to self, learn to give and serve, to live a life that counts for eternity. And likewise, to believe in what? What does it mean to believe in the gospel? To believe in the only hope of salvation. But not by works, not by strength or my own power or my own wisdom, but to believe in the one whom the Father has sent. Fulfilling his promise to act, to redeem, to restore, and to believe that God will fulfill all of his promises. Even as we see a world encumbered with sin and rebellion and darkness and hostility, to believe that God is still at work, that he is on his throne that he will restore all things, that we will be in glory when the time comes for us to be reunited with our Savior and all of God's family. Verses 16 through 17 reveal a a brief synopsis, an overview of Jesus' ministry purpose. He approaches the fishermen, Simon and Andrew, and has a very simple message for them. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. My greatest catch ever was when I was 10 years old on 4th of July. My father and my cousin and I were fishing, and we came upon a, a, a school of white bass, just schooling and, and just frolicking. We, we caught something like 21 white bass in just over an hour. Greatest day fishing ever. And nothing ever, nothing ever since, even remotely like it. But, but a clear act, a, a powerful memory of what it means to catch. Jesus, I believe, taps into the hearts and the desires of Peter and Andrew, of James and John, and every man and woman ever since. That great desire we have to make impact. To make our lives count for something, to, to be part of something bigger than ourselves. The late Steve Jobs lured Pepsi executive John Scully to Apple, luring him with the slogan, do you want to continue selling sugar water, or do you want to change the world? And yes, in some sense, Apple has changed the world. But how much that pales in comparison to the life-changing message 
of the gospel. And what Jesus invested in these few men who turned the world upside down by their preaching and their witness, by whose power and word toppled man-centered kingdoms, who raises up the dignity of the image bearers of God, who rescue people who are blindly stumbling into the pit of eternal destruction. When I coach baseball, I train my sons to be catchers. Catcher is the hardest position to fill on a young baseball team. I believe that if Jesus was recruiting disciples from a baseball team, he would say, follow me. I'll make you catchers of men. So he calls us to be fishers. He calls us to be catchers. He calls us to be part of his kingdom work, to be workers, to be a part of be a part, the reaping of a great harvest. Jesus says to all of his disciples, follow me. Lay down your nets. Set aside your careers. Close your books. Lay aside your worldly pursuits and consider. If he is not first and foremost in your life, then there is something competing for his allegiance. When we were in London, we learned that the surge missionaries don't call themselves Christians. They call themselves followers of Jesus to help shed past baggage of the church and oppression and help their uh, unbelievers to understand what it is they're being called to do. And in fact, it's very hard for Muslims and Hindus to come to Christ. They must pay a great cost. Many of them suffer rejection and hardship, persecution, for changing faith by choosing to follow Jesus. But those whom we met who have suffered much to a man all declared it was well worth it. And Jesus says to each one of us, follow me through trial, through temptation, through hardship, through heartache, through frustration, through ongoing battles with sin, through seasons of discouragement, while caring for needy and difficult people. Follow me. Take up your cross and follow me. But this same Savior also says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We have a bold and a gracious Savior. Well, lastly, we look at his authority in verses 21 through 28. On this occasion, Jesus was teaching in Capernaum, in a synagogue on the Sabbath day, his home base, as far as we know, for his light, his ministry. And after teaching, the people in the synagogue were astonished because Jesus taught with an authority that the scribes did not have. In fact, in that time, many of the teachers would, when they would teach, they would refer to Rabbi so-and-so said, Rabbi this and Rabbi that, in making an almost endless list of footnotes. The, the doctoral dissertation I turned in last year had almost 300 footnotes. Jesus didn't use footnotes. Jesus quoted God's word and provided authoritative interpretation. And so we see the results, the fruit of great and powerful gospel preaching 
that was stirring up a people, awakening them, arousing them to, wow, we haven't heard this before, and even stirred up an evil spirit, agitating in the heart and soul of a man asleep at the will, intimidated by the holy presence of Jesus Christ. Of course, Jesus rebuked the evil spirit, cast it out, and of course, his fame spread. I think the people at Capernaum in the synagogue were like the people in a sleepy, historic congregation that has slumbered under years of liberal preaching that was short on the gospel and long on moralizing, only to be stirred up by the fiery evangelical preaching of a man of God seeking to seek and to save the lost. We have a young Reformed pastor in our county who is serving a historic church that is now a non-denominational church, having left uh, the United Church of Christ, and he was inquiring our, our pastors recently about what to do with members still on the rolls who refuse to come to church, who won't even meet with a session to evaluate their testimony of faith. And we, so we encourage this brother to be bold and be patient, to continue preaching and continue leading his elders to understand how to shepherd and care for these, many of whom who have suffered under liberalized preaching and teaching. How necessary it is for shepherds to preach the whole counsel of God and point people to their only Savior. The gospel begins by cleaning house, by cleaning up church roll books, by exposing falsehood and shedding light on the truth, the gospel begins by restoring lost people into their right minds, into their right relationship with God. The gospel begins by establishing a new authority that trumps all the worldly authorities of men. The gospel begins with weakening our worldly attachments, loosening our grips and realigning them in allegiance to the one who is worthy of us to follow. The gospel begins by stopping our empty pursuits to find new meaning and purpose in the one who says, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. You and I need to begin again. At the beginning of the gospel, when we are weak, when we are flailing, when we are struggling, when we feel backslidden, we need to begin again to repent, to cast off our sins, to cast off our worldly fears and our worldly efforts to believe in the hope of Christ, that he truly is the Savior of the world. That is my hope and prayer as we go through the Gospel of Mark, that we truly would be a people characterized by great repentance and great belief. That we both be humble and yet bold, strong and courageous, compassionate and zealous for the things of God. Yes, the gospel began at Jesus' coming. And of course, it was, began with the prior promises of God to his people of old. But the gospel did not end at Christ's death and resurrection. As the disciples would soon learn at Pentecost, it was only the beginning the beginning of the gospel going out into all the world to proclaim to every lost creature the hope that God offers sinners who will repent and believe. 
Every new convert is a new beginning. Every day for you and I is a beginning again of learning to walk in discipleship and repentance and belief, trusting in the Lord our God. I invite you to follow Jesus, to trust him through fiery trials, to follow him as you seek to labor and serve in his kingdom, trusting that he indeed will make all things new to the glory of our great God and Father. Let us pray. We thank you, God and Father, that you have made known to us this glorious hope, that you have revealed the fulfillment of the promise of old in the coming of Jesus Christ, the one who calls us to follow, to repent, to believe. And I pray that we would be a people who are not afraid to begin again, but to grow in repentance, to grow in faith, and to follow him who leads us homeward, who leads us back into fellowship with the Lord our God. Bless us this week as we enter into the world to serve and to work and to be your witnesses. May you be glorified in us and through us, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.